Margo, we are so excited for you heading out on mission. How, how cool is it that within 12 months now, we've seen uh, two, and when you add Mia in the mix, now three different, four with Fred and Abby, but, but people who have, have chosen from our church to leave and go into missions. Isn't that cool? Yeah, amen. That's, that's fantastic, and it's, it's so encouraging to me as a pastor to see that happen, and even just our commitment to missions that has risen every year in our budget, and now to see you guys heading out, it's, it's just really cool how the Lord's working. So we're excited for you, we're praying for you, and we're gonna support you in a big way. We love you, Margo, we're excited. Amen? All right, hey, listen, I don't have any kind of fancy intro this morning. I tried to think of a good story, I could find nothing. It's, a, it's just a text, we're gonna read it, and we're gonna unpack it, and uh, so we're just going to dive right in. You good with that? If you are, say jump. All right, here we go. Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Now, you're going to hear this, and if you're like me, the first time you hear it or read it, you're going to be like, this is, a, this is a weird passage. What is going on here? And so that's why we're going we're gonna to dive right in and try to unpack it, and I'm going to try to help you understand it this morning. So let's read. Paul writes this. He says, tell me. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to promise. Now, he says, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it's written, he quotes Isaiah here, he says, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time he, <clears throat> excuse me, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That confuse any of you? <clears throat> It's confusing when you read it, but we're going to see here Paul's using allegory, and we're going to unpack it, and you've got to know your Old Testament, so we're going to look into the Old Testament today, but before we do all of that, let me pray, and then we're going to see if we can explain this text. Let me pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you uh, for your grace toward us, for your um, relentless pursuit of us in your love, as we sang. Uh, may that be a motivation for us to live lives of freedom and not of slavery. To, to lift up your name and praise you even in uh, the times of darkest trial and uh, to sing with joy even when our hearts are heavy. Lord, I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me and use me this morning, teach me and teach through me. I pray against the enemy who would just serve and, and want to confuse us and uh, to get us to, to abandon a text that seems hard to understand and just ignore it and, and not search for truth in it. So, um, Holy Spirit, move in us in such a way that we see your truth, that we uh, leave changed, and Jesus, that you're made much of today. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> Paul, in his book of Galatians, in his letter to, to the Galatian churches, 
He's making an overarching argument of the supremacy of grace over the law. The supremacy of God's grace over works for salvation. That it's, it's all based on promise, that God promised uh, if you would simply have faith and believe in him that you would be saved in Jesus Christ. Uh, as opposed to those who would say, no, there's more than that. Like you actually have to uh, do all these good deeds in order for God to really, truly accept you. Rather than saying, no, you should do all those good things because God has already accepted you. Not to get him to accept you. And that's kind of the overarching argument of Paul in this book. We've been studying it. This is our eighth week together now. And today we come to a passage that I would argue is probably the toughest to understand in the entire letter. And one of the toughest to understand in the New Testament. So we got a big task in front of us today. Um, so if we're going to do that, I think um, here's what you need to understand. Paul in Galatians 4, uh, verses 21 through 31 uses an allegory to further his argument for the supremacy of God's grace over religious works. So what we're going to do to understand allegory, I want to take you to Bible college for a little bit. You with me? You want to go? All right, here we go. We're going to go to Bible college, and we're going to talk about how do we interpret the Bible, because this is really important when you come to a passage like this. And uh, when you get to a passage like this, um, first off, I I want you to understand that we interpret God's word literally. We hold to a literal, the term is hermeneutic. That's the fancy word for the study, the art and study of God's word is hermeneutics. And we hold to a literal hermeneutic. In other words, we understand God's word as it's written. Literally, we interpret it. Now, uh, we have these core values in our church, right? And one of them is, is uh, number two is God wrote it all down. So as a church, we hold to this too. We say, listen, God's written everything down that we need to live the Christian life and to live a life of joy. And we're to believe it in all that it teaches, to trust it in all that it promises, to obey it in all it requires. That's how we view God's word. That's a great spot for an amen. That's how we view God's word. Yeah. Like, like, listen, Josh doesn't have much to say, or Kirk or Dan or whoever's up here, unless it's written in this book. And if, if I'm spouting off stuff that's not in here, that's not supported by God's word, then that's a good time to charge the stage. Right? Like we hold literally to God's word. He wrote a book. He wrote it all down. Now, when I say we interpret it literally then, so, so this book was written by uh, uh, 40 different authors over a few thousand years. God supernaturally worked in them and through their personalities to write the Bible. And it's actually a collection of books. And it's a collection of different types of literature. There's history in here, there's letters in here, there's prophecy in here, there's poetry in here. There's all kinds of different types of literature. And so, uh, as you probably know, if you're going to understand a different type of literature, you have to interpret it in a different way, you know. Uh, If you interpret a poem literally, sometimes you might come up with just weird interpretations, right? Um, So when we say we interpret it literally, what we mean is based on the type of literature it is that we're reading, we're going to interpret it literally uh, for the original author's intent. So when I'm reading the Bible, and um, I had a prophet Moody at Moody Bible Institute when I was in Bible college, and he would say, uh, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. So if you read it and you're like, oh, that makes sense, don't kill people. That makes sense. I don't need to seek some other deeper meaning of what that means, right? But when you come to a passage like this one today, 
And the plain sense, honestly, let's, let's be honest, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We need to figure out what type of literature is this? What type of literary device is Paul, the author, using? And then interpret it literally based on that so we can arrive at his original intended meaning. We don't want to read our own meaning into it. We want to pull out what Paul was talking about, right? So Paul is using allegory in this passage. Some of you are like, I I put away literary styles and all that like in English class in 10th grade and I'm never going back. Well, come back with me just for a little bit today, okay? Allegory is this. It's simply a story. It's simply a, a story that has an extensive amount of symbolism in it. And it's meant to communicate some deeper meaning. Beyond just the surface meaning, it's an allegory tries to communicate something deeper by making these symbolic correlations and symbolic links. And that's what Paul's doing here. So in, your, in allegory, uh, it, there's numerous parts of the story that are going to relate to something else. So the characters might relate to another truth, or the setting might relate to another truth. The geography, whatever it is, it's going to relate to something else. So there's nothing wrong with allegory, but when I said earlier, if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, one of the things that happened in the early church when they started to interpret the Bible is uh, they got on this kick of allegorical interpretation, where after Jesus came along, so starting in about three or 400 AD, they started looking back at the Old Testament and going, hold on, it's all about Jesus, so that Old Testament, it I don't know if we can trust it really. Literally, we have to just find some deeper meaning in every passage. So as an example, like there's, there's one commentator who uh, looked at uh, the tabernacle and the tent pegs, and he tried to correlate the tent pegs to Jesus. And he's like, well, the tent pegs were made of brass, so it was incorruptible, like Jesus uh, uh, nature was incorruptible, and it was metal, like the metals that went through the spikes in his hand, so That's the interpretation. No, no, they were just pegs to hold a tent in the ground. That's all they were. They were nice pegs that held a tent in place. That's it. If a plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. So we don't want to interpret everything allegorically. But when allegory shows up in the Bible, which is not real common, we need to use some interpretive methods that understand allegory. You still with me? We're almost done with class here, and then we'll move on to the text, okay? Um, Now, here's the deal. When you interpret allegory, here's a few pointers, and we're going to go through these things as we work through the text today. Number one, you've got to determine which parts of the story actually have some kind of allegorical connection. So which parts of it are symbolic. Then you have to uh, make the right connections. So this can be tricky without understanding context and culture and all these things. And then you arrive at an interpretation based on the author's original intent. All right, end of class. Now you're all, you're all ready, you're all learned up, right? And you're ready to, to tackle this passage. So let's do that, and let's dive in now again in chapter 4, verse 21. Remember, Paul's going to give us an allegory here. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do, do you not listen to the law? He's like, do you have any idea what you're asking for? You ever have your parents tell you that? You you have no idea what you're asking for when you're asking for that. And that's kind of what Paul's saying to him. And what Paul's going to do now, starting in verse 22, he's going to launch into an allegorical argument to again make his point of the supremacy of God's grace over our religious works and over the law. Um, And everything I just told you about interpreting a text allegorically, where you don't want to read something into the text that isn't there, 
at first glance, it's going to appear like Paul does that. Because he's going to take the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar from the Old Testament. And if you don't know who these people are, we're going to go look at them and I'll help you understand. And he's going to read a meaning into it that nobody in that day from the original author could have ever come up with or understood. And so I don't think that Paul is assigning a brand new meaning to that text. He's just taking a well-known story to the people of that day, and he's going to use it in an allegorical way. It'd be like if you used the story of the Cubs in 2016, and you told somebody that, uh, that, that they were like Kyle Schwarber, hitting, you know, coming in after being out, knocked out for so long in the season, and he comes in during the World Series, and he's the hero that wins the World Series for him. If you, if you told somebody, man, you were gone for a while, but now you're back, and you just, you, you did it, whatever it is in life. Now, you're not saying that they're Kyle Schwarber or that the entire thing of the World Series was all about them. You're just using that story in an allegorical way to communicate something about him, right? That's what Paul's doing. So let's keep reading. Um, he says, for it's written, here's where he starts the allegory, it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now, the, the sons he's talking about here are Isaac and Ishmael, and the women he's talking about here are Hagar and Sarah. Uh, but if you don't know anything about them, this story is not going to make sense. And I think it's good for us to just take a field trip back to the Old Testament Turn back in your Bibles to the beginning, into Genesis, and we're just going to unpack uh, this story, understand this story, so that we can know the story well that Paul's going to use in an allegorical way to make his point. So here's the story of Abraham. You can turn to Genesis chapter 16 if you want, and I'll, I'll join you there in a minute. Abraham was the person that God chose in the Old Testament through whom he was going to rescue his people. God made a promise way back in Genesis 3.15 after Adam and Eve sinned that uh, he, he was going to fix what they messed up. He's going to send a Savior to rescue them. Well, you fast forward to Genesis 12, and God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abram at the time was still his name. And, and he says, I'm going to make you into a, a great nation. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a great land. And Abram believed God, and, and he followed him. And Abram was 75 years old when God called him to follow him. And when God told him that he was going to have uh, many descendants, so many, in fact, that he wouldn't be able to count them. Well, there's only one problem. He's 75, and so far he has zero kids. And his wife is barren. And if you're Abraham, are you like, huh, I don't know how this is going to work, God. Uh, but you get to Genesis 15, and it had been uh, even longer yet since, since God had made that promise. And he, he reiterates it to him in Genesis 15. And it says that Abraham believed God. And because of his belief in God's promise, God counted it to him as righteousness that he saved him. Paul quoted that verse earlier in Galatians. Um, well, 10 years after God made that original promise, Abraham's pushing 85, 86 years old. God had yet to keep it. Now, if you got that promise when you're 75, you have no kids and you're gonna have a bunch of kids and it's been 10 years, you're thinking, um, God, the, the, my biological clock is ticking and I, I, think, I think it stopped. <laughs> like, when are you gonna keep this promise? It's been 10 years. I'm not getting any younger, neither is my wife. So uh, we get to chapter 16 and we find out, here's what happens. Abraham and Sarah, his wife, 
rather than continuing to trust God, and I think understandably so from a human perspective, when you consider their age, when you consider how long the promise had been, 10 years now, they decide to take things into their own hands. They're not gonna trust God for this promise of a son any longer. They are, but they're thinking, ah, there must be something we need to do to fulfill that promise. When in reality, God was like, no, 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 there's nothing for you to do. I'm gonna fulfill the promise. Look at verse one of chapter 16. It says, now Sarai, that was her name at this point, Abram's wife, that was Abraham's name at this point, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai, and Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So um, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, uh, this was somewhat common in that day uh, for, uh, for a man to, uh, who, who had uh, maid servants to, or a wife with maid servants to, to sleep with them and give, get children and they would be credited to the, the mistress and you're like, that's strange, I know. Isn't it great that when, when Jesus comes along and you get to the New Testament, uh, that subjection of women is over and he, he totally corrects the original design. Like, listen, this, it's not supposed to work that way. Go back to Genesis. It's one man, one woman, one lifetime. And Jesus does more for the cause of women than anyone in human history. And it's a great thing. But in this day, there's still all kinds of uh, just bad stuff going on, for lack of a better way to say it. So Abram listened to the voice of his wife, Sarai. Now, it was just in chapter 15, just before this, that Abram believed God, and he counted him as righteousness. But now, evidently, he, he's taken things into his own hands. He's not really believing God for his promise anymore, is he? Do you ever do that? God, you learn a truth about God's uh, grace and love for you, and you believe it, and you know it, but time goes on, and all of a sudden, you start to take things into your own hands. Keep that in mind as we keep going. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, so he's about 85, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that Hagar had conceived, when she, Hagar, saw that she, Hagar, had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress, upon Sarah. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Now, if you're Abram at that point, are you wondering what are you yelling at me for? Like, this was your idea. Well, I can't get it right. But, but clearly he had sinned. And, and Hagar starts looking with contempt on Sarah. This, in other words, she started to believe the lie too, that maybe she was the one of promise, not Sarai as God had originally intended. She started to see herself as greater than Sarah in God's eyes. Keep this fact in mind again when we get back to Galatians. But Abram said to Sarai, he, she, he said, behold, your servant's in your power, so do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt, with, dealt harshly with her, and Hagar fled from her. So Sarah was mad at Abraham, right? Uh, and he gave in, and he let her redirect her anger at Hagar. And uh, one of the things we learn here is when you seek a merely human solution to a spiritual issue, it turns into a big mess. And that's what they had done. Well, look at verse 7. So, so 
Here's where we are in the story so far. Sarah gives to her husband Abram, her mistress Hagar. He sleeps with Hagar. She, has a, she gets pregnant. And then uh, Sarah gets upset because Hagar started looking at her with contempt. And so she got angry with her and cast her out into the wilderness. So look at verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. As a little aside here, in the Old Testament, whenever you see the angel of the Lord show up in the Old Testament, in an Old Testament narrative like this, most of the time, I believe, now not every single time, but most of the time, I believe this is actually Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate Jesus. Remember, Jesus is God, right? He is eternal, he didn't start to exist at the incarnation when he was born to Mary. He simply, uh, John 1 tells us that he put on flesh. He became a man at the incarnation, but he always existed eternally before that. And I believe multiple times he actually shows up in the Old Testament, oftentimes referred to as the angel of the Lord. So the way we understand whether or not when you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, if it's Jesus, is just by context. So let's keep reading and find out. And, and the angel of the Lord said uh, to Hagar, he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, well, I'm, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. So the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, this isn't the child of promise, yet God still shows blessing to Hagar, doesn't he? And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, by the way, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Now, look at the description of Ishmael. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. You can fill in the blanks. Uh, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. This guy's going to be a jerk. Right? He, he's just gonna, a wild donkey of a man. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Okay, we said, uh, if we're gonna understand if the angel of the Lord is Jesus, we gotta pay attention to context, right? So did anybody hear like a ding, 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 ding going off right there? Because what, what does Hagar do? How does she refer to this person? She says, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. She says to him, you are a God of seeing. She refers to him as God. Friends, this is Jesus showing up to Hagar, I believe, and appearing to her while she had uh, uh, been totally cast out and was totally alone. And he treats her exactly like you would expect Jesus to treat someone, with love and grace and knowledge of her situation and compassion and look at verse 15 now. Then Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So here's the story so far. God made a promise to Abram and Sarah that they were going to have a son. No son 10 years later. Sarah says, here, take Hagar, my maidservant, sleep with her. Maybe that's how I'll get a son. Abram listens, he does that. Sarah gets mad, kicks her out. Uh, Jesus appears to her and says, you are gonna bear a son, name him Ishmael, which means God hears. She goes back, has a son whose name is Ishmael. You with me so far? So Abram has one son, but 
Here's what you find out if we were to keep reading into Genesis chapter 17 is that that's not the son God actually originally promised to Abraham and Sarah. See, God, God reiterates his covenant and he says in Genesis 15, this won't be on the screen, but I'll read it to you starting in chapter 17 verse 15, God said to Abram, as for your wife, Sarah, you shall not call her name Sarai, excuse me, but Sarah shall be her name. Going forward, I will bless her. I will give you a son by her. Wow. Abraham is uh, 80 plus years old at this point. Um, then Abram fell on his face and he laughed. In fact, this is by the time that Ishmael's about 14, Abram's close to 100 years old. He says, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. It's just human reasoning, right? It makes sense. Ishmael's going to be the one. But God says, no. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you will call his name Isaac. By the way, do you know what that means? Laughter. So that every time Abraham and Sarah call for their son, they're going to remember they laughed at God's promise. God has a good sense of humor, I think. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him. I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. So Abraham still loved his son Ishmael, but God says, that's not the one I promised. So Abram is 100 years old, and God says, uh, you're going to have a son with your wife, Sarah, who is in her 90s. Now, look at verse chapter 21. Skip ahead with me. We're working through this story, and then we'll go back to Galatians. The Lord visited Abram, Abraham's wife, Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. What did he promise? To make her pregnant. God always keeps his promises, friends. He always does, every single one. Now, Humanly speaking, I think part of the reason God delayed from the time Abram was 75, 25 years till he's 100 to actually give him this son is just to make sure Abraham understood this has nothing to do with you, buddy. This is all my promise, all my grace, all my power. Nothing to do with you. Because imagine, he just said that Sarah was in her 90s. Do you know anybody in their 90s? Any women in their 90s? To, to, to Again, just to articulate how impossible this is, humanly speaking, and how powerful and great God is in keeping his promises. Now, that, that woman you thought of, maybe it's you. Imagine if she was pregnant. Can you imagine that? No. Humanly speaking, it's not, it, it's not possible. Yet this is what God does. He kept his promise. He did to Sarah as he had promised. And then verse two, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Uh, he had told him in Genesis 17 that it would be a year and she would be bearing a child. So verse three, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac, which we said means laughter. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. It was part of the Old Testament uh, law. Abram was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. 100 years old. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. So if you laugh at that thought of Sarah, 90-some years old, um, being pregnant with a little boy, you're fulfilling scripture. Because <laughs> she said, everybody's just going to laugh about this. And she said, uh, who would have said that Abraham, to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I've borne him a son in his old age? 
When under impossible circumstances, God can still keep his promise, can't he? In, in the midst of sure defeat, he's still in control. It's pretty awesome. Now, do you remember how old, pop quiz here, do you remember how old Abram was when Ishmael was born? 86. Now he's 100 when Isaac is born, so that makes Ishmael how old? 14. Now let's keep reading. So Abram, so far we've got his wife Sarah with a son Isaac, his mistress Hagar with a son Ishmael, who's 14 years old, and the child, talking about Isaac, grew and was weaned. Uh, and Abram made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned, in other words, from, from breastfeeding. And so Isaac was probably two and a half to three years old at this point, which would make Ishmael how old? Pushing 17, right? Yeah, 16 pushing 17. But look what happens at this feast. Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, that's Ishmael, who's about 17 years old, whom she had born to Abraham, Abraham laughing. Now, that word laughing is probably better translated mocking. And who is he mocking? The two-and-a-half-year-old. Now, my son Charlie's two-and-a-half, so this is kind of really real for me. Like, if, if some 17-year-old punk kid started making fun of my son, it'd be bad news, right? And if he kept it up, I might end up doing prison ministry from the inside. Like, you don't... <laughs> you, <laughs> A 17-year-old kid doesn't pick on a three-year-old, right? I mean, that's just common sense. Now, look what happens. Mama Bear comes out with Sarah when this happens. She said to Abraham, you need to cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. She wanted that kid gone. How many of you, like moms, like you would be like, that? that's me. I'd react like that, Totally. Um, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Uh, see, in other words, it was really complicated for him because he loved both of his sons. He loved his 17-year-old son Ishmael and his three-year-old son Isaac. And so to send his son away was hard for him. It was displeasing to him. But uh, God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. God reminds Abraham his, his allegiance is to his wife Sarah. But God still recognizes his love for Ishmael. And verse 13, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, of Ishmael also, because he's your offspring. So Abram rose early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water. He gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and he sent her away. And she departed, and she wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. A skin of water would have been like a goat's skin, like a giant canteen full of water. Um, this had to be hard for him to send them off, to send off his son. And when the water, verse 15, and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Now, again, remember his age? She's like, Ishmael, just sit over here under this tree. And then she wanders off. She went and she sat down opposite of him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, so a couple hundred yards probably. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and she wept. Listen, Hagar was undone. She was hurt. She was alone. 
She felt abandoned, without hope. And then uh, over under the tree over here, though, her son Ishmael evidently was praying for her. Because look at verse 17. Uh, God heard the voice of the boy. I imagine Ishmael sitting under the tree just being like, um, Lord, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know what's going on with my mom, but she's losing it. <laughs> Would you help her? Like, we're stuck out here alone. What, what's going to happen? I don't, I don't know what to do. So God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Jesus again reiterates what he had promised back in Genesis 16, that I'm, gonna, I'm with you, I'm going to make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, he provided for her in her distress, in other words, and she went, she filled the skin with water, gave the boy a drink, and God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Hagar was an Egyptian, so she found an Egyptian woman to marry her son. Now, a couple other things here about Ishmael before we skip back to Genesis. We've seen the story that God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. They took things into their own hands. They quit believing the promise and said, maybe there's something I need to do in order, in order for God to keep his promise, that I've got to earn it somehow. So uh, Sarah gives Abram Hagar. He sleeps with her. They have a son, Ishmael. But God says, no, that wasn't my plan. My plan was to fulfill what I originally said, all by promise. 14 years later, they have Isaac, Abram and Sarah. Three years later now, Isaac's three, Ishmael's 17, uh, they get sent off into the wilderness, Ishmael and Hagar. Well, Ishmael, God had promised he was going to still make him into a great nation as well. And he's not the child of promise, but God's going to bless him. In fact, uh, those of Arab descent come from the line of Ishmael. Now, this includes many Muslim people. Not all Muslims are Arab. Not all Arabs are Muslim. But the Muslim religion, Islam, uh, looks at Ishmael as the one God promised to bless, not Isaac. And so if you wonder sometimes why there seems to be so much conflict between uh, uh, Jewish people and Christians and uh, those who are uh, devout Muslims, now this is not always the case, but, but in some of the things we see in the news at least, which is probably more minority than reality, but that division is, is there because of them tracing the promise through Ishmael rather than through Isaac in terms of what God said. And so just like it said, Ishmael would always be at odds with his kinsmen and be the wild donkey of a man who would rule over them. When we see these conflicts, we see that prophecy being played out. And ultimately, it all goes back to Abram's sin of sleeping with Hagar, doesn't it? Well, Ishmael has 17 sons who are known as princes, and just like Isaac would have, or 17, 12, sons who would be princes, just like Isaac would have 12 sons and the 12 tribes. And both are great nations of people whom, listen, whom Jesus loves, all of whom who need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, with all of that background, thanks for bearing with me, 
Let's go back to Galatians 3 or Galatians 4. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but we're going to be able now to unpack this text and have it make sense, I think, pretty quickly. So look with me at Galatians chapter 4. Uh, again, in verse 21, Paul says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, don't you listen to the law? Remember, his whole point of this letter is saying that God's grace and his promise is superior to the law and good works. For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Now, we just saw who those were, right? His two sons were Ishmael and Isaac. The two women were, the slave woman was Hagar. She was a slave to Sarah. And then there was Sarah who was free. One was a slave, one was free. You with me so far? So again, this is an allegory, so we have to find those points of correlation. That's where some of them are. So uh, verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. What does he mean, born according to the flesh? Well, in other words, naturally, just through simple human effort. Ishmael wasn't born because of God's promise. He was born because Abram slept with Hagar. They took things into their own hands. It was a matter of their natural works. But the free woman, the son of the free woman, Isaac, he was born through promise. Remember how old Sarah was in her 90s? Listen, that makes no sense, naturally speaking. Hagar was very young. It makes sense. But with Sarah, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's all God's promise. And that delay, waiting until she's in her 90s, makes it even clearer. So you have a son who's uh, of a slave woman who was born, who came according to the flesh naturally, and one uh, who was born through promise, supernaturally, by God's intervention. Do you see the difference? One human effort, one God's intervention. Let's keep reading. Now Paul says this, this story may be interpreted allegorically. So here we have Paul's explanation. I'm going to take this story that you know about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac, and I'm going to use it to teach you something about grace. I'm going to use it as an allegory. He says, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery, and she is Hagar. See, now, now Paul tells us that the two women represent two covenants. Another point of correlation in our allegory. Uh, we've heard of two covenants all the way through Galatians. We've heard of one based on the law or works, uh, which results in slavery. And we've heard of one based on promise or of grace, which results in freedom. One is based on human effort. One is based on God's intervention. And he says that uh, the women are two covenants. Uh, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. So he's saying, in my allegory here, in taking this story allegorically, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assign Hagar as being like uh, the old covenant given at Mount Sinai when God gave the law to Moses and all the rules that people had to follow to be pleasing to him in the Old Testament. And she bears children for slavery. Just last Sunday, if you go back and listen to last week's message online, uh, you see that Paul, earlier in chapter 4, says that um, to follow the law is to enslave yourself to it. And why would you go back to slavery when you're free? So here he's using this illustration saying Hagar is like, she's like the law. She bears children of slavery. See, Ishmael was a slave because his mom was a slave. Those who follow the law are slaves. 
Paul's making an allegorical connection here. And so in verse 25, he says, Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She, Hagar, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now, this is getting more confusing. We've got, uh, so far, bear with me here. We've got two women, Hagar and Sarah. We've got two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. We've got two statuses, slave and free. We've got two covenants, law and grace. And now we have two cities, the present Jerusalem and the Jerusalem to come, in other words, heaven, the heavenly city of Jerusalem. Well, why two cities now? Why is Paul bringing in cities into this? Well, you've heard of the word citizen, right? That comes from your city of origin. Your citizenship, your mother city, is the city from which you have citizenship. Um, it's, it's where you have a home. It's where your rights derive from. We still use this language today. We don't say mother city, but we'll say motherland, right? Or is, what's your motherland? Where are you from? That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that, because uh, he goes on, uh, he says, that, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So Paul here, he's saying that uh, one Jerusalem is one in this earth, it's under slavery, but one is above and we're, we're she's our mother. In other words, that's where our citizenship is. That's who we are. We're not the one here under the law, under slavery, under a curse. Our citizenship, our identity is that of the Jerusalem above in heaven. He says this in Philippians, right? Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an identity statement. So in this allegory so far, Sarah represents the new covenant. She represents grace. She represents freedom. She represents our true identity in Jesus Christ. She represents promise. Uh, For it's written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth, cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one, Sarah in this case, will be more than those of the one who has a husband. See, if... uh, Friends, if salvation was based, by, based on works, then only the quote-unquote fertile could ever be saved. Only those who do enough good works and who are of the right lineage and who dress the right way and say the right things and know the right people could ever be saved. But Paul says, no, the barren one is the one with hope. The one who appears to have absolutely no hope, humanly speaking. That's the one I'm gonna save. And it's all by my grace. It has nothing to do with anything in her. She's barren. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. Paul's telling the Galatians and us that we're children of promise. In other words, we're not born into the family of God by human effort like, I, like Ishmael was. We're born into the family of God by promise. See, when you become a Christian, friends... The Bible speaks of it as you become a brand new person. It uses this imagery of you being, it's as if you're born again. You're brand new, a brand new identity. And it doesn't happen by any human effort. It happens by promise. And Paul's making this connection here that's saying, so some people, they try to get born into heaven like like Abraham and, and, and Hagar tried to have Ishmael just by human effort. They try to do enough good things to get there. But the reality is you're not children of, of human effort. You're children of promise just like Isaac. 
It makes no sense, humanly speaking, and it's not to do anything with your effort. It's all by the promise of God that you've been saved, all by his grace. And Paul uses this allegory, again, to communicate that truth. He says, just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now. Remember how that 17-year-old punk kid, Isaac, uh, picked on his little half-brother, or Ishmael, picked on his little half-brother, Isaac, who was three years old? Paul's saying it's the same way now. That people who try to get into heaven through their good works, they pick on those and persecute those who try to get into heaven the way the Bible proclaims is the only way through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone, by grace, by promise. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying religious people are bullies. <laughs> They're bullies. They try to impose all kinds of things on you that aren't true. And why is it? Well, because the, the gospel is really threatening to religious people, more so than it is to non-religious people, because religious people, are, they've wrapped up their whole identity in all of their good deeds, and the gospel comes along and says, your good deeds are like filthy rags. They're, they're of no use. And so because their identity is wrapped up in that, when they hear that, they go, oh, that can't be, and it crushes them, and so they impose more rules on everybody else, and they, they're bullies to those who trust in God's grace. Friends, it's all by promise. What does, the, what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, like Abraham did Hagar, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In Hebrews, we're told that to cast off every sin and weight that holds us down and to run with perseverance the race set before us, to trust in God's grace and his grace alone. Not your good works. It's never enough. If you're truly a Christian, you're a son of promise. Don't be like Abraham, forgetting the promise and trying to take it into your own hands, but instead, trust the promise to the end. Amen? Hey, listen, that was, that was a big monster of a passage to try to unpack this morning. There's a lot there, right? You're all kind of like, I, I need to stretch. Well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna pray, then we're gonna sing about, about this because you're left with two choices. You, you have two choices, you can either choose Jesus, and in choosing Jesus, friends, you're choosing freedom. You're not bound to rules. You're not bound to law. Now, you're to live a life that's honoring to him, but that doesn't earn your salvation. It's been paid. There's freedom in that. But if you choose religion, you choose idolatry, you know what you're choosing? You're choosing slavery. You're gonna be like the son born to the slave woman and you're, you'll never experience freedom. If you haven't trusted Jesus Christ, trust him. Let's pray, we'll sing about it and go enjoy the rest of the weekend. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us through him. Thank you that um, a, a guy like Paul can, uh, can teach us the truth of your word. Thanks for making it plain to us as well, Lord. Help us to to live lives of freedom as uh, children of promise, not trying to take things into our own hands. Lord, so many Christians, I think, and so many of us, we live with this sense of guilt that uh, we're, we're not doing it right, we're not doing enough, that we never measure up. And the reality is we don't. And that's Jesus why you died on the cross for us. So help us to rest in that grace and not do like Abraham and Sarah and Hagar did and take things into our own hands and try to earn your favor but instead to rest in your promise and to love you. Lord, I pray for those who've never trusted you. I pray today might be the day they turn in faith, Jesus, to you and become a Christian. 
knowing that they can't do it on their own either. And Jesus, they need your work on the cross to save them. So Father, we love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.